Greetings to all of our listeners. We really appreciate you being here for another edition of the PATC podcast. My name is Mark Waterfill. I am the president and owner of Public Agency Training Council. With me is Dave Broadway. Hi, folks. My name is David Broadway. I'm, uh, I have the privilege for teaching at PATC. And we have a special guest here with us on this episode, David West. David, thanks so much for being here. Tell our audience a little bit about your background. Thank you for having me, Mark and David. Uh, my name is David West. Uh, I live in uh, Bowling Green, Kentucky with my wife, Jenny. We have uh, three adult kids and a combination of 13 uh, grandkids and great-grandkids. I retired uh, I retired from state police, uh, specializing in arson investigation and electrical fire analysis with a total of around 35 plus years. Uh, I'll tell you a little bit about my career. It, be- it began in technical college during high school. I wanted to be an electrician. So I began my training in high school and I became a master electrician. I started a business in the late 1970s, which ran through 1992. I owned and operated the business. And in the fall of 1991, I took my certification at the University of Louisville to become a state certified electrical inspector. And I was then hired by the Kentucky State Fire Marshal's office as electrical inspector inspecting state-owned projects when they had new construction going on. And I also worked with uh, during that period with the state police, the ATF, and the FBI when requested. In 2002, I resigned from the state fire marshal's office, and I used my electrical background and experience to join the Kentucky State Police. I attended an 18-week police academy, graduated, became a Kentucky State Police officer, and I was assigned to the Bowling Green, Kentucky Post 3 as an arson investigator. And then I went back to uh, Eastern Kentucky University and went through a course to become a a KLEC police instructor uh, in May of 2005. And I taught at our academy, arson, fire-related death, electrical fire analysis uh, at the State Police Academy. And I'm happy to say that I continue that throughout my career with State Police. And I'm proud to say now that I teach for Public Agent Training, training Council when requested. Well, that's fantastic. Tell our audience the classes that you teach for PATC. Well, I teach uh, vehicle fire investigation. I teach hands-on electrical arson investigation, which... That, that lesson is really based on a fire that I worked 27 years ago here in Bowling Green, uh, the Howard Johnson's fire that I worked with the NRT, the ATF NRT. And I also uh, do arson scene search and evidence recovery class and a new fire arson investigation academy class. And which is your favorite? Well, I would say my favorite would probably be the hands-on electrical arson class uh, would be my favorite. Simply that, 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 like I said, that class is based on an actual event where we had an arson of uh, four people died in this fire. And we had an electrical fire on one end of a building and we had a suspicious fire on the other end of that building. And ultimately, we had two situations here. We had a potential accidental fire cause and then we had a very suspicious fire cause. So that took a lot of uh, a lot of, uh, I guess, code knowledge, you would say, in training to figure out how come the electrical fire happened in the first place. That is part of what I have written my new book about that's going to be published in three to four months. Fantastic. Tell us uh, the name of your book. Okay, the name of the book is uh, Electrical Fire Analysis. The subtitle is Failure of Mechanisms That Cause Fires. Throughout the entire chapters of the book, it's going to talk about basic electricity for the fire analyst. It's going to talk about non-code compliance in fires. Uh, it's going to be talking about overcurrent protection, uh, different wiring methods that the investigator could encounter on a fire scene. It's going to talk about new fire prevention technology 
that has come to the forefront in the last decade, and failure mechanisms, uh, melting characteristics of uh, different types of wine and the components that they're connected to. It's pretty much a, it's a very much an in-depth book that I have put together, been writing on for some time, but Durant's Publishing out of Pennsylvania, they're, the, they're going to be the publishing company, and they said they would have it completed uh, and available on Amazon and places like Barnes & Noble in three to four months. Oh, that's fantastic. Congratulations. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Absolutely. A great accomplishment. Go back to the Howard Johnson's fire that you were talking about. So was it a single culprit? What happened in that situation? Okay. Well, that was uh, actually it was the owner and a maintenance gentleman that was involved in setting the fire. Uh, of course, when the NRT came in, the it became a, a huge case and a huge investigation. It was in the winter. It was very cold. They had built a room, a wooden room inside this, under this atrium. And, uh, the room, basically, uh, when the fire occurred, it all fell into the swimming pool. We had timbers and everything in a swimming pool. And what had happened, there was a dry sauna in one end of this uh, of this room and a stack of mattresses in, on the other end, on the north end. And I had a, a huge electrical panel behind, just directly behind the dry sauna. Well, this panel, it did what we call, it went to ground. It had a face-to-face -face fault and a face-to-ground fault situation that ignited the wall that the panel was mounted in, the wood wall. So we had, basically what we had, we had uh, two different fires. We had one on one end of a stack of mattresses on the north end, and then we had this fire that could have been very much accidental on the south end. And what we call uh, uh, vector drawings, vector charts, uh, the arrow and pointer method, we were able to see that the two fires met in the middle. So basically my job was, I was assigned by the fire marshal to examine the electrical system and determine first and foremost, why did this panel ignite this wall? Why did it fail? And come to find out it was improper grounding due to the conduit and the wiring method they had used is what helped the fault to that length of a duration that ignited the wall. Now, if you know much about electrical code, that's one of the very important documents that we use in this business. And I'm blessed to have to have the knowledge in electrical uh, the electrical industry prior to becoming a fire investigator. It, you can look at it this way. Standards and application will equal the investigator determining a failure mechanism. The investigator needs to have this knowledge of a standard of, app, uh, of installation, uh, an adopted standard. He needs to know the application of the wiring method, and then he needs to know the failure mechanism. But to make a story short on this one, what happened was they used three-inch conduit for equipment grounding. Chlorine slush, sloshing out of the pool had soaked into the ground where the conduit was routed near the pool and ate the coating off of the conduit and it rested into the chlorine. The conduit no longer could be the equipment ground and that explained the duration of the panel being able to ignite the wall. The way I figured this out was I did a, a calculation on the incoming transformers on the fault current potential. I told the lead uh, the ATF, uh, ATF gentleman, the investigator, I said, I need a crane. So what we did was a crane. We pulled that conduit and panel all out of the ground. And when it pulled out past the pool, the wires had slid off the con off the conduit. And there it was. We had lost our equipment grounding. Then what we did, we got uh, we called in a canine. The ATF had a canine in Louisville that we brought in, and we found uh, gasoline samples on the other end of the mattresses. It was tried in federal court, and they were found guilty and sent to prison. What was the motive? Insurance money. It was, oh, really? it was money. Yes, it, it, it was money, and it's just sad that four people ended up dying in that in that uh, in that fire. That was uh, oh my. That was a tragedy. But again, you know, it's like it's it, here's the deal on the, and this is what I stress in my classes to my to my students, to my attendees. If you, if you have an electrical situation, if you have some type of failure mechanism on a fire scene, doesn't matter if it's residential or commercial, you have to be able to 
either be able to examine this item or this wine method and determine what role did it play in this fire. To some degree of certainty, you have to be able to do that. And if not, then you need to have resources available that you can call on to bring in to assist you with that. So, David, is it fair to say science repeats and replicates so you can make these determinations? Yes, Dave, and, he, and that's a good point, and I want to, well, I'd like to touch on that for a minute. Fire science has had a major evolution, a revolution in my lifetime, beginning, I guess, in 1992 when the NFPA 921 was first published, which is a guideline for fire and explosion investigations. Uh, and then what came along in the early 70s prior to that was a standard called NFPA 1033, which is a standard for professional qualifications for fire investigators. And just about every court, every federal court in this in this nation, and a lot of the state courts rely on these two documents, this guideline and this standard, if you're going to be able to testify as an expert witness. Actually, in this world today in fire investigation, there's no an, uh, analyst can survive in the field without having knowledge and training in fire investigation and the proper methodology and science. Kudos to you, sir. Yes. And that's why it's a never-changing process. It's, it's always changing. David, I have a quick question for you. Being an sure. old-time investigator, old-time cop, with no no exposure to fire interpretation or anything like that, are there are there things that I, if I went back into service, I've been out since 08, if I went back into service, what would be something as a first responder on the scene? Of course, you're going to preserve life and, uh, and do the rescue as, as, as well as you can, but what would you suggest that I be aware of rolling up as a layperson? Law enforcement investigator, no fire training. Is there something that you can tell me or tell our listeners that say, this is what we would like you to do. This is your awareness level we would like you to be at when you roll up. And that's a very good point, David. And uh, yes, when you roll up on a fire scene, first and foremost, we want to try to protect and save lives. And secondly, we want to also, we got to worry about our own safety, you know, of being in or around a structure that is that has been, that has sustained fire damage. You know, how, how stable is this structure? You know, and you want to secure the scene. You know, the entire scene becomes evidence. And one thing that you really want to be concerned about is, you know, who were the first units actually through the door and on the scene? You know, what did, and when the investigator arrives, that's some of the first people that he needs to talk to to lock in statements. You know, what did you see? You know, what was the fire's behavior when you, when you uh, walked in the room? or in, into the structure? Was there anything uh, blocking the doors? Was there, was there anything abnormal that you found uh, when you first arrived? And really, even a layperson, an officer, a patrol unit, a lot of times when I had a, had a complaint and was on a fire investigation, it's amazing the information that the first responders were able to help me with. I mean, it was just, I really take my hat off to them. And it's, it's, I'm talking about EMT, firefighters, local PD. It's amazing the information they could help me to piece my case together. Here's what you want to do on a fire scene. Your goal should be to disprove every hypothesis. That should be your goal. And that's really what 921 and 1033 is directing the fire investigation, the fire investigator toward uh, doing is trying to disprove your hypothesis. Now, when do you, you know, and the next question is, well, when do I have a probable conclusion? You have a probable conclusion when your bit of evidence uniquely supports your hypothesis or your theory and you can't dis dis discredit it, that's when you have a probable conclusion. And according to 921, uh, in or uh, chapter 18, uh, uh, origin determination, it talks about, you know, what is a probable conclusion? That's a conclusion that the evidence supports and you can't discredit it. Thank you. I think uh, I made note one time and somebody patted me on the back. I said, you know, the color of that, the smoke changed. The color changed all of a sudden, it seemed like to me. And of course, 
being a lay person with no fire training, uh, no science behind it, all I can tell them is what I saw as a lay person. Yeah, yeah the smoke got black uh, right. you know, after I got That's there. Deep. Right. That can be an indication of, of the material burning. Most things are hydrocarbons. Most things are made of hydrocarbons. And that will give an orange color flame and a black smoke. Now, here's what you got to be careful about as a fire investigator. And I teach this in my classes. When you gather your information, when you deem the scene is safe, you know, and you gather all your information from the first responders, you got to remember something. Not all fuels nowadays are what we call legendary fuels. You have a lot of new products in a home that are made of synthetics and plastics that have what? They have hydrocarbons in them. They have hydrocarbons, uh, you know, cushions on a couch. They're made of a polyurethane. You know, that's a foam cushion. It has air pockets in it. When you get the right amount of temperature, then it can melt and it can go from a solid state to a liquid state. And when that happens, you can have what appears to be a poor pattern on the floor. In reality, it's a cushion that has melted and left that pattern. That's fascinating. Absolutely. That would throw me off. And uh, that's why <laughs> we're so, so thankful to have experts like yourself that can bring the science in. Well, and it, that's just that's just what it, that's where the every class, whether it's automobile, arson, scene search, it doesn't matter what class that I'm teaching. I try to drive home one point. I try to be a facilitator. Every fire investigator that I encounter has had different experiences than I've had. My goal is in a class to be like an 80-20 person. Okay, what is it that you can bring to this class? What do you want to learn from this class? What do you want to leave here with and have a question about and get an answer to that the next time you have a fire, what you've learned in this class is going to help you to do that examination. Malcolm Knowles in the 70s, remember Malcolm Knowles in the 70s, he was uh, he was big on this adult learning. You know, he's he's a gentleman that wrote some books about it. I try to get an 80-20 situation going because then it makes, I want the class to feel comfortable, but I also want their knowledge and their in input as well to help me be a better instructor. I enjoy teaching. I enjoy what I do. And, you know, it's all, you know, it's all, you got two things. You got either quantitative analysis or you got qualitative analysis. When I invite people in with their objectives, what is it you want to learn from this class? A lot of times I will use both different types of analysis. The qualitative analysis is more documentation driven. It's more standards. And believe you me, underwriters, laboratories, uh, NFPA, ASTM, I have incorporated all of these standards into my curriculum of, of writing my lessons. And the reason I do that is I want the class to have factual information standards that they can use in their examination and analysis. Ed, you and I have discussed the certification course or even more, more than one. Uh, tell our audience about certification courses. Well, we talked about having a certification course of 50 questions uh, for approved applicants uh, through PATC to, became, to become electrical fire analyst. This will not be at an engineering degree or engineering scale, but this will be more of a hands-on examination of a panel board, the circuit in a dwelling or a structure, different types of wiring methods, what you can expect to find, what is a failure mechanism, that type of questions. And, and basically, the test will be offered probably in about a two-hour test of 50 questions and with a score probably of 70 or better on the, on the exam. And I feel like once they achieve that, uh, that will look good on their CV. Uh, that they have had this training and they do have a certification in it. And the fact is uh, that can go with their CV, which is something I want to touch on as well. A CV is very important to a fire investigator or for, to any professional in that in that matter. Mine goes back into the 70s and comes forward. And, and so it's very important to have this CV up to date. It could really help you in a lot of different ways. It could even avoid you having to go through a Daubert motion. It could even avoid that if you have a good CV. Absolutely. 
And you've done some expert witness work as well, haven't you? Yes. In fact, I'm on retainer. Uh, I have a case right now with a Commonwealth that I'm uh, that I have been retained uh, to work on in uh, later in the year. Uh, since I retired, I've had a case with uh, uh, the FBI here in Bowling Green on a firefighter that died. And I've also had a case with uh, the ATF uh, on a Dollar General store I've went to trial with since I retired. So they still call me occasionally when they need my assistance. Do you enjoy that work? I do enjoy it. I do enjoy it. Uh, the gentleman, the, the Charles Sparks case, the gentleman that died in Adair County, Kentucky, uh, he died of a heart attack. He was fighting a fire. This case kind of had a somewhat of a different twist to it, if you will. Of course, when, when, when Charles had the heart attack, of course, all the attention turned trying to save him. And this was a farmhouse, a two-story farmhouse. And basically what happened, the fire rekindled and it burnt to a degree that uh, when I was called to examine it, uh, I had to call it undetermined. And I went back and told the captain, I said, Captain Baird, I said, I'm sorry. I said, there's too much destruction, too much damage. And I really can't call this anything but undetermined. Well, that was in 2011. And I retired... Uh, a year or so later from the state police. Lo and behold, since the, the FBI, they acquired the state, uh, from the state police. They made an arrest on it. And what really got the case together was this. I interviewed the subjects living in the residence. I walked them in on a recorded interview and the FBI pinged their phone. They weren't where they said they were. And then the investigators, they turned the heat up and they got they got a case. I see. So I, basically, I went and testified. Yeah, I went and testified in, in in the proceeding that this is your interview. This is your recorded interview of this of this defendant. Uh, the fire, the fire, and you ruled the fire undetermined, which I did. That was pretty much the gist of my involvement in the case. But we got a conviction for it. Well, that's great. Tell us what you like to do when you're not investigating fires or teaching about the investigation of fires. Oh, I love my grandkids. Like I said, we have a combination of thirteen uh, total count. I have enough oh for my. maybe, yeah, maybe enough for two ball teams. Wow. <laughs> and they're all different ages. They're all different ages. And my wife and I, uh, which uh, we're just blessed uh, here in Bowling Green. We have a nice home and I have a great retirement. Uh, grandkids are all healthy and well. And I love building canoes and paddles and things. I'm I'm, I'm really into woodworking as well. And uh, I'm excited about this book coming out. I may, And the author said, uh, why don't you write another one? I said, well, I may, <laughs> or, the, or the publisher, rather, said, why don't you write another one? I said, well, I may, I may write another one. I said, let's see how this one goes first. Fantastic. Well, congratulations, and thank you so much for being here with us. Well, you're very welcome. And we really appreciate it, and David Broadway, thanks to you as well. You guys have a great rest of your day. Thanks, Mark. Thank one you. One question, David. Shelby with the uh, Kentucky State Police. Did you know him? Can't remember his last name. Was it Shelby Ryan? Yes. He brought me up. I taught a school up there on, uh, on um, aerial surveillance one time. And, uh, I wonder if he was still around. We have a, we have a lot of great officers and we need to keep all of them in our prayers and thoughts. Uh, Absolutely. You know, and there's so much there's so much uh, civil unrest going on in this country. And we really need to keep all of our law enforcement and fire officials in our prayers and thoughts. And you gentlemen, thank you for having me on this uh, on this podcast. I appreciate it and uh, look forward to maybe having another one one day. Thank, thank you. Sir. Take care.